What I wanted to do today was a couple of little things before I go into the substance of my talk, um, one of which is to talk about different kinds of landscapes and how we perceive them, and basically what, what is it about the tropics that allows us to think about them in a certain way, and what kind of landscapes are tropicalizable, and what do we even mean by that? What I'm trying to set up here is a sort of set of ideas that have as much to do with the development of the tropics as Orientalism does with the invasion and incursions into the East. But what I think is interesting about this, and which writers on tropicality normally discuss, is the idea that the environment is so, when you hear Orientalism, you think of that exotic music and the beautiful architecture and a sort of an urban story. Whereas actually the tropics, of course, are quintessentially story about nature as we understand them. So what we normally think of when we think of the tropics is, you know, basically there are plantilist forest, the endless canopy uh, soon to be destroyed, and we think of its beautiful and essentialized people um, in a kind of perhaps primitive harmony with that forest. But what I'm going to do now is talk to you about, I'm going to take, take you on a sort of language of history, which if we think about sort of the stage theories of history, how people describe occupation and transformation, we would start with something like this. Here is our open tropical forest, uh, not a mark on it, no human intervention that we can see. And then there comes human occupation. This is actually, of course, Euclides da Cunha's maps of that very river and actually a little, the same part of the river. And then, of course, this is right along the river. We imagine colonization proceeding across it, uh, perhaps slightly nomadic. And then what we imagine is, this is sort of how it looks more broadly. And then we can go into uh, the imagination of a sort of an ag agrarian world, a world full of occupation and settlement, which we see here in these geoglyphs, also from the Purus Basin. I happen to love these. I could put about 20 of these on and just look at them. I think they're so great. Um, and they've sort of come to light as forests have uh, been cleared in some areas having to do with uh, livestock production. So suddenly they sort of, you clear the forest, you find all these artifacts of, um, of agriculture. And then this is what, there, there's more than 250 of these artifacts that have been discovered. And so it's clearly that what we're looking at is something, oh, you might want to think about this as maybe some place in the south of France, only it happens to be in the Purus Basin. Now, in our normal way of thinking about sort of historical things, you start with emptiness, it fills up gradually, it's nomadic, and then you end up with an agricultural thing. In fact, we're just doing the reverse, which is that we know that now that there's this agricultural history, so we're sort of basically going backwards. Um, this is 100 years ago. The, the geoglyphs are between uh, uh, 500 and 1500. And somehow we've basically erased this landscape, all that history in the landscape, well, the evidence of which I've shown you. And this is now what's called um, the Upper Purus National Park. It's a binational park between Peru and Brazil. And it is portrayed as the most remote place on the planet with the tribes that run from man. So 
uh, it's a rather interesting story about how you can get from some place that was a flashpoint in the global economy at the turn of the century, the last century. Um, it's a part that had a scramble for it, which involved the US, France, Belgium, Brazil, uh, Bolivia, Peru, among its other formal actors, many others were covert, and how you can turn a place that was so imbricated in global politics and dynamics into a world of emptiness. So what I'd like to do today is really talk to you a little bit about tropicality, which is a story about essence, and this essence, I would argue, is what you see before you, and tropicalism, which is, like Orientalism, an ideology. But of course, there's this close relationship between essence and ideology in colonial or economic dynamics between nations, and so it's useful to go through this. First, um, the tropics like the Orient have had a durable purchase on the spatial imagination and logics of Atlantic colonial and scientific regimes. What's clear is that the geographic re region between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn embrace virtually all planetary biomes. That is, it doesn't all look like this by a long shot. It goes, when you want to do quick sort of studies from the Arctic to the tropics, you go up the Andes or up the Himalayas and not, you don't bother to go from you know, the tropics to the Arctic. It's sort of a shortcut. Um, uh, so it's not just the dark, broadleaf forests that uh, come to mind when we evoke the tropics. So the question really becomes, what landscapes are tropi tropicalizable and why? Tropicality involves the idea of, an essence, a set of fundamental elements that adhere to the tropics, some of which are objective, involve measurable scientific elements, uh, intrinsic, intrinsic to the geographic position of the tropics, like relative day length, for example, and biophysical description. The ecological ethnographic spaces, which are a dynamic part of the tropics, are obviously read through historical and scientific frameworks, but they remain largely covert in discussions of the tropics. What Dennis Cosgrove has called the ontology of tropicality, which is its visions, imaginings, and representations, melds and is partially produced through the measurements and interpretations of cosmology of, of the tropics as place and as feature of the planet. It's important to emphasize that the tropical project has been as much a scientific project. If you hit tropics on the ISI web of science, you'll get like 40,000 citations. Uh, whereas if you look at it as, you know, the tropics and colonialism, you'll get a far, you'll get plenty, but it will be a mere fraction. So it's important to realize that these are seen, and most of the people who write about the tropics experience it not as a social place, but as a biotic place. And in that experience of it as a biotic place, it's come to be, to have its history rather erased from it. Um, most scientists of the tropics see their efforts as de uh, involving debates within the biological sciences and then, and then thus relatively immune to the larger ideological concerns in, in the structuring of tropical science or places. 
and in the framing of its context and political outcomes. The larger meta-question meta of what is a tropical e ecosystem is beyond a bio biotic phenomenon and is largely an element in a cultural and bureaucratic and civilizational project, one that's largely ignored in a lot of the scientific um, uh, literature. So tropicality as an essentialism has been used in a variety of ways, some of which invoke the questions of the all-pervasive alienness of tropical landscapes that are seen as biotically distinctive. Now the argument that I'm going to make as we go along is that when we talk about tropicalisms, we actually need to make a differentiation about this because the idea of the biota as being extremely alien is really a function of the uh, Anglophone and Francophone tropical experience. It's not so much a function of the Iberian experience or let's say the Mediterranean experience which includes ecclesiastics. So it's important to realize that there are very different ways of looking at the tropics and that these become competing paradigms both in the colonialisms that, uh, that evolve as well as in the contemporary politics. Uh, nature, and David Arnold, who uh, is uh, often quoted on this point of tropicality, has been especially important in this framing, saying, you know, it's this, a unique biota. Nature in this view is seen as at least as powerful and almost as much an actor in the colonial development question as the agents and subjects of colonialism and modernization. Um, the characteristics of place, the usual cliche might be resumed in the terms of paradisical, pestilent, and paradoxical, dominate the analytics of, this, of the tropics and the emphasis on ality um, has highlighted the representational tropics of texts and, um, uh, and drawings and has been overall less concerned with how these essentialisms uh, played out in the frameworks of uh, the, the expropriation and appropriations of the geographical topics. That is, the representations are sort of seen through artistic phenomena or, you know, the rise of particular uh, styles in representation and sort of amazingly dis unlinked from a larger ideological dynamic. Um, uh, this is kind of surprising. Um, uh, and especially in light of the fact that where a great deal of this sort of foundational representation occurs is um, in Amazonia uh, or Brazil and that the colonialisms of Africa and Amazonia had very tightly linked colonial histories that um, were in many ways extremely dramatic uh, involving as they did the Holocaust of the indigenes in the Americas and the diaspora of Amer African slavery, both of which were linked by um, ethnicities, histories, and commodities. And although later India became tropicalized, in, that is somewhat leached of a social history, as it became more imbued with the naturalist aspect, and French Indochina became sort of in orientalized and tropicalized via the writings of the French geographer Paul Guroux, the New World and its tropical spaces have remained sort of stubbornly um, bifurcated away from the, that is the the biota and its social history have been largely over uh, overlooked 
So what I'd like to do now is kind of give you um, a panorama of sort of the foundational images and ideologies that have shaped various tropicalities and sort of the key foundational texts. We're going to be leaping like gazelles over centuries, but the idea is to sort of give you a sort of background in terms of formulation to how we get to contemporary competing conservation ideologies in the tropics and also sort of, if, if you will, competing um, uh, tropicalisms that informed different practices of colonialism. I have uh, this enormous um, uh, uh, matrix that has, you know, uh, <laughs> the different colonizing uh, imperial, imperial uh, enterprises, the different centuries, their ideas of nature and so on. If I were to do that, we would be here all night. So I'm going to be, uh, as I say, I'm going to leap very, um, <clears throat> uh, very imp uh, uh, sort of offhandedly over a great deal of historical time. Um, but um, in the next book, Tropicality, we go into this in excruciating detail. And uh, of course, you'll, you'll be waiting for that one with eager and bated breath. Um, but what I want you to keep in mind is that most of the literature that you'll read on tropicality is Anglophone and Anglophone and a little bit of Francophone in there. But that the real, uh, and the Anglophone means not only British, but also increasingly American. The United States has, as everyone knows, had quite a bit of colonial enterprise in uh, South America including uh, colonization projects and charter companies and lots of other things, uh, including invasions. So uh, it's important to keep this in mind also that when we move into the 19th century, we also need to include the United States in the general turn to empire. So let me just zoom down here. Um, oh, this is another um, sort of picture. You might be confused, like what is this? Is this like, uh, but this is actually the raised fields of Beni. This is actually a pre-Columbian formation. So if we sort of contrast that with our, and that's, it's not so far from the previous slide I showed you. It just happens to be a flooded savanna with all these anthropogenic um, efforts within it. So the point here really is that we've sort of de, de uh, we've re-naturalized what had been very intensive natures. Well, how does this happen? Oop, this is uh, the wrong one. Um, well, first of all, the, if you sort of think about the tropics, one thinks about really um, the ends of Earth and the beginning of time. It's a kind of pre-lapsarian place. Paradise, after all, is before history and after history. So the Edenic story, which is but one of them, is an extremely important um, dimension of what we imagine about it. And it's constantly sort of, you need pick up only the National Geographic or other kinds of things and you'll see this or anything from WWF and you'll see sort of, you know, what the real tropics are, which is uninhabited and, you know, kind of an enduring testimony to God's creation versus the trammeling hand of man everywhere else. So, while Orientalism is really a story about a glorious past different empires, a story of decadence, of uh, des decadence, de depotism, sort of perversion in a certain sense. The tropics is really sort of seen as a tabula rasa. 
That is, it's a place without history, a land without history. And that the stuff that happened before, even though it was seen, was sort of amazingly forgotten, and um, forgotten for a number of interesting reasons. So we want to counter, and obviously Orientalism is sort of um, uh, east, uh, west to the east, but the other one, tropicalism, is north-south, obviously. Um, and one is sort of a story which is really about more about culture, and tropical, tropicality and tropicalisms really are about nature. And it's the nature, it's the nature of nature. Is nature benign? Is it violent? Is it good? Is it you know nature as an actor, um, a nature as red in tooth and claw? And it's also about the nature of man, you know, sort of because it's sort of pre-lapsarian. You can say, well, it's the noble savage, in which case it, uh, we have the, the, the story of virtue to tell, or it's the savage beast. But regardless, they were pagans. It was a land without saint lay, saint ré, saint fait, a place without um, king, law, or faith. And in this sense. The tropics have always been sort of, particularly the Latin American tropics, have always been subject to extraordinary kind of utopian as well as other kinds of social experiments. So it's Im important to realize that this idea of the tabula rasa is very different in terms compared with the sort of Orientalist thing where it was sort of looking at these decaying empires and you know the sort of impacts of culture where it was a story uh, really of, you know, uh, uh, intellectual and social virtue. Whereas in the case of the tropics, of course, there was this question of the virtue and so on. Um, but uh, there was also, it was also seen as, in a certain sense, a kind of experimental space. It was, if you look at enduring histories of uh, ideologies of history and race, the starting points, the stage theories, are all sort of in these sort of sacred groves in the midst of these sacrifice zones. So that the little story I told you in the beginning, which was just backward in terms of what actually happened in Amazonia, um, is really pretty important in terms of thinking about how people view the tropics. Let's see. Oop. Uh, on we go. Next. Um, okay. Well, who? I'm putting this on. This is one of the earliest uh, drawings of. This is uh, obviously a Debray thing with those adorable monkeys and parrots, which were soon on their way along with a few Native Americans, um, uh, right on the return trip with Columbus, Columbus, actually. But these are these beautiful Debray things, and you've seen this imagery a billion times. But it's important to note that. It, it's inspired by a couple of foundational texts. And that sort of each of the tropics have been integrated into um, durable stories about place and nature um, from the beginning, and that there are these very important foundational texts that go all the way through. The first, of course, would be Delery, the uh, voyage uh, to a country known as Brazil. He was a Huguenot fleeing oppression in France, wanted to, uh, and he and his group were going to found a new colony, a French Huguenot colony in Rio de Janeiro. He discovers natives uh, gorgeously naked. They're having a great time. They're lovely and fun. Um, they're basically prelapsarian. There's really a lot of work because they're actually very good, 
but and they have this sort of general idea of thunder and so on that could be turned into a god. But in essence, it is a world without faith, king, or, um, or law. And so it's really what this does is it sort of feeds into a kind of a social imaginary of this place, which feeds in later to other kinds of questions about um, enlightenment questions on uh, what is the nature of man and what is the nature of society. Another major foundational text, of course, is that of Raleigh, which is that nature is glorious, there are fantastic resources, um, the natives are nice, you know, but uh, they're kind of childlike, ready for the guiding hand of England, the Christianizing process. And also, however, there are lots of resources there that they don't really understand how to use, um, and they don't know the value of it. That is, they are uh, sitting there, and that in this generous nature where amazingly fruit and so on falls from the ground, it falls to the ground, feeds them without apparently any effort. So they're kind of indolent and you know, never really sort of got around to the important things about civilization. They aren't linked to really understanding the value of things that are around them, whereas, of course, British colonialism could just get, uh, get, up, to the, uh, get up to snuff with this. Everyone, however, is perturbed by this one problem, which is this person, <laughs> cannibalism. Um, and, but cannibalism, of course, is, has its kind of uh, wonderfulness, too, because, first of all, if they were cannibals, you could, uh, there was a certain barbarity that infused this whole story. So that, um, uh, and, and so it had sort of the double purpose of they're barbarians, they're like wild animals, and thus they can be enslaved or killed. Or the alternative thing, which is not only are they sweet in their way, but they're sort of violent in this like perverse way of being cannibals. And so they, the necessity for evangelism is absolutely essential. So what one sees in this um, a wonderful uh, picture of Post uh, of uh, the Dutch colonial enterprise in Brazil is this sort of broader question of um, the necessity um, for going into these regions, not just for uh, the, the gold that there might be or as a place of refuge, but as actually a religious necessity, and per particularly as we go on in time. Now, these two texts, Raleigh and um, uh, uh, Delary, have people in it, but not very many. Uh, partly this is because they happened to be on the coast and were already being devastated by disease. But there were people who were going into the interiors, who were in the interiors. That is, Orellana, who shoots down the Amazon in the mid-16th uh, century. And then um, uh, Hans Schmiedel, largely lost in the larger stories here, who is actually a person who works, uh, who was a mercenary who worked with Cabeza de Vaca and Henry Cabot. Um, going up through the center of the continent. So he, they were trying to get to uh, Cusco from the interior of the continent instead of going up the Andes like uh, Pizarro did. So you have these two reports from the interior that show a massively populated interior. Um, 
uh, with polities and lots of provisions and people wearing gold and uh, various kinds of animals that look like they are, you know, the Andean sheep. Uh, perhaps uh, those are llamas. And in any case, what you have in this situation is you have uh, reports from the interior that show very densely populated things. Um, and what you see in this is that these texts largely become lost until the 19th century. Although Schmedel was an incredibly, you know, had a very uh, big life as an adventure author, everyone thought he was lying. And so it was sort of like, uh, you know, like reading um, uh, 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 The Lost City of Z or something. You know, kind of fun, but, you know, couldn't really be true. And then uh, De La Casas, of course, was also talking about the fact that not only were there lots of people, but they were being decimated by the process of colonialism itself. So the point of this is that we have sort of two stories. One is the sort of prelapsarian story of perfection and everything, and you know, really uh, people in a kind of primitive thing. And then we have another set of texts about um, rather elaborated societies. So the question then becomes what these, these uh, uh, 16th uh, century texts uh, become sort of the foundational imagery. So everyone's probably heard of Raleigh, everyone's seen these Debray kinds of images and the sort of ideas about people at that time. Now these are two of the sort of northern stories, but it's important to realize that there were other ones as well. And I don't know, this is... Uh, uh, Debray, a wonderful picture, and it's sort of, you know, the, the uh, native and nature sort of melded into one, the sort of conflation of everyone in one, into one kind of thing. But this idea of the sort of difference and prelapsarian nature of this was very different from other kinds of, let's say, the I, Ibero-Hispanic or um, and, well, writ, writ large, the Mediterranean version of tropicality. First of all, uh, it's important to remember that the Portuguese were already slaving on the, uh, along the African coast in the, in, uh, the 1400s. By 1400 it's, uh, south, by 14, the 1490s, just when Columbus is off, uh, there were more than 100,000 slaves in Lisbon. So it was, you know, they were really slaving. Um, the other thing is that, um, you know, like the poor, the tropics are always with us. There have been large links through the Mediterranean to the tropics, whether this was the cute pygmies that one might have or the med medicinals in gold, much of which was derived from what is known as the Gold Coast um, in Africa into Europeans, into European economies. So the Lusophone world, the Portuguese world, was really one that was predicated on evangel evangelizing, which justified its various other kinds of activities. It was a mercantilistic empire, that is, a, uh, an empire upon the ocean seas, that is, actually integrating into the economy itself was not itself a project. Miscegenating, having sort of its Creole proconsuls was. So, it's con it worked in preciosities and also worked in a way that changed slaves from being sort of a every once in a while thing or a th an element of conquest into a simple element of commodity where the conquest was actually taken on through 
uh, fostering or taking advantage of intercultural wars within Africa and using the prisoners of wars who eventually became the points of these wars as the sort of um, conduit into international slavery. The Hispano-tropicalism, by the way, was much more linked to a kind of bureaucratic hybridism, that is a sort of decapitation of existing bureaucratic structures and installation of populations on top of, of, of the Hispano um, uh, regimes on top of it. It tended to outsource its tropical work of evangelism and so on, as did the Portuguese, to the ecclesiastics. So within these questions of tropicality, it's very important to realize who used the existence of populations as a justification for claims versus those who used emptiness as a justification for claiming. And what you find, and I, I refer here to Patricia Seed and, and others, uh, Lauren Benton, who's also a historian of legal systems of, of imperialism, is that basically there is this whole strata of using wasteland, emptiness, um, as essentially a justification for appropriation. But what was interesting to the Lusophone and Hispano world, and especially to the ecclesiastics, was in fact places that were inhabited. And it's very important to realize that they went, when you read their documents, and of course the Lusophone literature is not very used in these studies of tropical, of tropical worlds, um, that what they see people all over the place because that's what they're interested in. They're interested in them either as slaves or as souls. So um, the, the ecclesiastics, of course, the Jesuit, um, the Jesuit occupation really stretched from the mouth of, La Pat of the La Plata River to the Orinoco. So you have to sort of think of the ecclesiastic world, the mission system there, as essentially a buffer state between the uh, encomienda and Hispanic empires associated with uh, the Spanish-speaking world and the Lusophone empire, which was more slavery. So both of them are involved in sort of coercive labor control just through different mechanisms. But the ecclesiastics were very interested in what we might call uh, the utopian project of Campanella. That's what they were in the tropics to do, not just to uh, um, uh, convert souls, of course that was very important, but also to create a heaven on earth. So, and, and literally heaven on earth. Where, so essentially what they were looking for was a, an inhabited world that could be, and since it was prelapsarian, since they didn't really know what they were up to, it was, if you will, a, a massive social experiment about sort of a multicultural creation of an ideal society. Um, not everyone who was involved with it saw it that way, uh, like such as many of the indigenes who soon departed this earth, but mercifully were baptized, so it was better for them. Um, anyway, the other thing is that this was also this period in which um, this Mediterranean world was very interested and very accustomed to, if you will, an ethnobiology and an economic botany of a managed world. If you think about this close association of the Iberian Peninsula and its occupation for 700 years under uh, Islamic hybridity, if you will, what they were very used to sort of cultural exchanges and botanical exchanges and moving things from one place to the other, what Joseph Hooker would la later call the um, empire of botany. 
And so moving stuff from one landscape to another was very much part of that system. Um, that was not so much a part of the uh, 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 Anglo-American uh, or French system until actually the 19th century. But very early on, you get the movement of landscape elements, including the people to manage those landscapes, from one place to the other. Um, and so this ethnobiological thing is also kind of a characteristic. But what underlies it is the idea that these landscapes are managed, they're used, things, there's a lot of knowledge about them. You just have to find out what it is. That is, it's not a wild landscape. It's a landscape that is a, a transformed one, or at least a known one. The other thing is that um, while these people, colonials in general, during uh, the uh, 16th and 17th century largely sat on the coasts, they had a lot of trade relations and links into the interior. So the interior, of course, was not an unknown place, but rather a place of, um, uh, from which many kinds of interesting relics and, and uh, riches would come, including, of course, these wonderful gold artifacts. This happens to be a Tyrona uh, artifact. This is from Colombia, um, a, a little-known empire of incredible aesthetic uh, um, glory in many ways. Have, has anyone here ever been to the Colombian Gold Museum? It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's full of this stuff. You can't even believe how glorious this was. And if you go to the Museo Geldi in Belén, all of a sudden you start to see some of the oldest pottery in the world, which is the most elaborated and glorious thing. So it's, it's quite interesting how we have managed to turn this into a wild nature. So we have this sort of first foundational moment. I'm, as I say, I'm leaping over this, um, which tends to be sort of prelapsary from what we experience in the sort of Anglo-American uh, Anglo, uh, version of the wild and the primitive and uh, the tabula rasa. <clears throat> but it's also important to realize that while that gives us sort of an idea about primitive nature and uh, the sort of glory, glorious yet scary nature, we also have the question of slavery. And the reason that slavery is important in understanding the dynamics of the tropics is that um, the debates over the natives, of course, whether they were human and whether they should be protected and under what circumstances you could enslave them was uh, you know, a, a fulminating question uh, for much of the time. Um, also, it, it, it while these discourses were not initially racialized, they certainly did become racialized later on. One of the things, of course, was to explain, well, um, there were, of course, the polygenetic theories of human, human races, which is that they were different genetic species, and so they could, you know, they were different species, and so it could be nailed. Um, the, <clears throat> the other thing was, of course, they were prisoners of war, and as such, if their people really wanted them, they could ransom them for their slave price. The other, of course, was the question of um, paganism, and the other thing was that slavery was actually good because they would get evangelized and then they would become di disciplined into the all-important work of sugar growing. Um, <clears throat> so, <coughs> of course, also as we go on into the 19th century, we have scientific racism and so on, um, and social Darwinism, all of which place uh, uh, slaves and Africans as a kind of lesser, uh, lesser set of populations that 
maybe don't deserve to be enslaved, but, enslaved, but are, are, uh, receive benefits through slavery, um, or through being enslaved. Again, um, the ecclesiastic swath in here also is involved, involves questions of labor. But one of the things that's important about this is that it sets up the ideologies of race that are accompanied with these ideologies of nature that pretty much go into the formation of different types of um, uh, imaginaries of the tropics that come to fruition really in the 19th century and that turn to empire that we have after the Enlightenment. First of all, um, what's always astonishing to me is that it's the 19th century in which the tropics become more wild before you really do have people sort of nosing around. Partly it's because who was writing about it? You had ecclesiastics writing about it and um, administrators. And so they tended to talk about commodities a lot and how much was coming in and going out. But more uh, essentially, um, they were talking about the populations and what they were doing and so on. So what you had is this animation of um, in, in the uh, 16th and 17th century and the questions of slavery, that people were focused on what other people were doing. It was sort of people in places along the coast. But what happens in the 19th century is that essentially the tropics become wild. Partly this is due to the fact that it was easier to get into the interior and partly due to steam. And as a, as a, 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 a politics of going through these areas, you could get into more wild nature. Um, but the other thing is that the politics of claiming became much more linked to ideas of emptiness. Um, and uh, that was, of course, the ju justification, which was civilizational, opening up places to commerce, and opening it up to Christianity. So that these three C's become extremely powerful ideas in terms of, uh, of taking over these places. Um, the second thing is, so you can't really be a colonial if it's full of people doing stuff. Um, but you can if it's empty and if, and if they still remain, maintain their uh, primitive attributes. The second thing is that the um, experience of the sort of uh, eight, uh, 17th and uh, 18th century in terms of slavery had involved vast disruptions in both the New World and the Old World tropics. And it's not exactly that they became, well, in the New World, they clearly became depopulated. But in the Old World, they also had at least a, a Holocaust involving some 30 million people who, the 11 million who went to the New World and the two uh, who, were, who died for each that went, and the disruptions that went along with this. So one of the things is that if you were a colonial going through there, people might sort of step back and try to avoid you, not really knowing what you had in mind, you know? The other thing was the translo translocation of romanticism to the tropics through the work of people like Alexander von Humboldt. So the realm of science moved away from its sort of ethnobotany and the sort of botany of empire, if you will, to a kind of um, uh, uh, theoretical science. So it moved away from the sort of encyclopedic science to a more theoretical thing and also in uh, a way from a sort of uh, God-based uh, spirituality into a sort of more nature-based spirituality where you have von Humboldt um, uh, screaming with pleasure as he gazes over the various landscapes. 
So um, what happens in this, in this dynamic is that both with the rise of romanticism in general as a sort of rejection of the urban industrial world and the rising world of commerce, you have this sort of creation of wild nature for various reasons, as I've mentioned. Um, and then, of course, you also have a rather more explicit quest, set of questions about Anglophone science and empire, mainly through things like the, um, uh, the work of Spruce and Markham and the rise of the British Geographical Society and Kew. Um, but what's important here in the 19th century is not just the question of emptiness and the idea of nature as uh, prodigious, uh, but also the uh, incompetence of local inhabitants infused by ideologies of race that developed under the period of slavery and, um, and sort of carrying within, uh, 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 within them this sort of deep idea of um, either their children or, or not really quite up to the task. So when we... What we need to sort of think about in the 19th century is that this is a really new phase of discovery. We have the sort of initial discovery. We now have a new phase of discovery. So we have nature, ideas of nature, complex, imposing, powerful, yet amenable to scientific understanding. So the translocation of um, uh, sort of scientific management away from the temperate zone into its possibility into the new world that the world, the tropics become sort of an object of scientific as well as economic penetration and the intensification of commodity demands in the late 19th century, latex, medicinals, ivory, oils, um, involved questions of rationalization, but these were not always possible. But what came out of this was that the idea of an ordered landscape that comes out of uh, the uh, late 19th century and early 20th century ideas about nature and human landscapes made it seem that the disorder that you might see in a shifting cultivation system uh, suggested that local populations were not able to master landscapes. They were mastered by them. <clears throat> the idea that these populations couldn't even hold on to their existence in these places uh, and sort of justified the need for colonial mastery derived from other cult cultures. So you have this sort of shift for, with science and spirit, spirituality uh, to the periphery along with this sort of colonial dynamic. Now, the, what this is all meant to do is to sort of provide you with a little discussion here about how we get to the tropes of the tropics in the 20th century. And, um, uh, What's important to keep in mind here is that we now have sort of competing tropicalities going on, those that are increasingly sort of anglophone in their orientation and others which are sort of more lusophone. And the place where this is actually being played out most is in the Amazon basin. Um, well, first of all, uh, what we get is the U.S. story, which is one about um, uh, Yankee know-how and Southern Manifest Destiny. The Amazon was sort of seen for a long time as a site of uh, the sort of southern manifest destiny, as was Cuba, as was um, uh, places like Nicaragua, that when the Civil War was about to unfold and it became clear that um, uh, the southern states couldn't expand into 
the rest of the continental United States, they sort of veered around and looked for other slaveocracies in which the Amazon featured very prominently. So there was this idea of having the Amazon become an American colony. It wasn't that they did establish a colony and it wasn't very successful, but there were other ways of trying to do that which occurred in the late 19th century as well and early 20th century. The other thing is, of course, it was always argued that those people didn't know how to manage these things and they weren't entrepreneurial enough. And the U.S. had already done this in Mississippi and this was just sort of like a bigger Mississippi and so why didn't they let us do it? So one was the idea always that this population was inadequate to the task of uh, regional development. Uh, the second thing, and, and when they did do stuff, they were degrading. So one of the big tropes in the tropics in the 20th century is that of degradation. That is, human interaction involves degradation. And this, in fact, is a function mostly of Muirist ideologies and the sort of rise of environmentalism and the reality that there was really a lot of degradation and environmental contamination that occurred in the developed world. And so why wouldn't this occur in the tropics? And also there's a sort of, as we know from Richard Grove's work, a kind of deep uh, theories about climate change and erosion and so on that began to occur in the colonies as, as um, longtime agents began to review these in more detail. But the Muirist ideology sort of set up a sort of three-part world. You have the horrible urban, you have the agriculture, and then you have the untrammeled wild. This classification actually has nothing to do with what the tropics are like, where these kinds of things become much more mixed. But in essence, he, I don't need to tell you this, he um, is, is involved in the creation of natural parks. These are meant to be places in which nature has its own, its own dynamic, its own untrammeled um, expression. And even though, of course, that many of the places where he worked were, and, and that, he, that he cherished and loved, were places that had, had millennial human activities on them. It was his imaginary of the wild that became the most important thing. And this is a model of, if you will, environmental colonialism that becomes very important. The second thing is that um, it also involved a lot of expulsion uh, politics, which is that nature requires human, um, uh, human protection, and so humans cannot take part in it. So what goes on in this and how we sort of move in this whole argument is that, first of all, nature, while it seems sort of strong and robust, is in fact fragile. Um, and the then that has its links in Buffon in the 18th century and goes all the way through. That is, there's this whole question of degradation. And even though it overwhelms lots of people, and particularly its local inhabitants, um, it is a fragile environment. Um, the, the second thing about this is that the local population is not wise enough to manage it. And so you need a kind of external, uh, uh, the, 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 the wise managing hand uh, derived not from an autochthonous thing, which would be degrade, de degrading and impossible, but rather from a profound and more developed external um, universe. And finally, um, the justifications of this movement tend to be either based on a kind of modernizing form of agriculture, which then is supposedly leaves the tropics, the wild areas on its own, 
And the rest of it is based on a kind of moral planetary value of conservation for everyone. However, um, it isn't exactly how it works out. So let's go now and sort of look at tropicalisms as they play out in the, in the Amazon. First of all, um, the, the Lusotropicalists and the ecclesiastics would argue that the place is inhabited, and I think I've shown you already that it is quite inhabited. But Lusotropicalism also was, um, uh, didn't tend to argue, because Portugal lost its, what lost its center of its empire in the, uh, the early 1800s and moved to Brazil, they had this sort of idea of an autochthonous civilization in the tropics. And since that empire was based there for most of a century, the idea that the tropics couldn't engender civilization because, like, the weather was too good or something, um, sort of flew in the face of the fact that they really did have this giant empire. Um, and that they had an imaginary of a real civilization in the tropics. Um, the third thing was that they imagined it as hybrid, multicultural, and syncretic. And the sort of imperial practices of the Lusophone world sort of from the beginning involved a sort of messagination and, uh, you know, the Creole pro uh, proconsuls and interaction with locals rather than imposing a, a colonial uh, bureaucracy from, um, from externally. The other thing was, of course, the rise of a cultural politics. Uh, tropics and national identity became sort of the same in much of uh, South America as the West is for the United States. That is, it's a place of imposing unique nature, different from Europe, uh, more, um, you know, you Europeans with your rotting castles, you know, uh, as opposed to those uh, fantastic and glorious nature of the New World. So um, in a certain sense, what happens is that this question of national identity becomes transposed onto tropical areas. And this idea of the tropical forest as a national project then gets picked up in terms of contemporary politics through things like rubber tappers, quilombolas, and native populations who make the argument that that natural forest isn't so natural, but in fact is the outcome of human habitation and human manipulation. In terms of the contemporary politics, the claims made by rubber tappers, quilombolas, and native populations, the moral rationale is that of equity. And the argument is that, you know, wait a minute. <laughs> they, they seem to have created this forest. Why not use, uh, why can't they stay there? Um, and that, in, in essence, it's a different kind of approach into the tropical questions. And actually, next week, you'll hear more of this if you listen to the uh, upcoming program on social movements and Amazonian conservation. But the other thing is that this idea of autochthonous civilizations is that there could be a unique form of development. That is, that the project for the tropics was not a colonial one or uh, in the classic way it's thought of, but that it was actually the source of a new possibility of a development model that might actually uh, have within it the elements of sustainability, or at least be capable of managing and producing enough resilience so that you could get a landscape that 
was in densely inhabited for thousands of years that you could magically turn into a world without history. The other thing that was sort of central to the Luso-tropicalism as it moved into the 20th century is that what the famous line of Pogo, we have met the other and they are us. That is, while everyone else was constructing a world of difference between populations of the tropics and, um, and themselves, essentially the project in Amazonia from uh, particularly since the mid-19th century was one of uh, appropriation and um, turn, tr uh, the creation of cit citizenship through the process of, of integration rather than processes of separation. This contrasts really with the emptiness that we uh, have made much of in this whole story, um, which sort of gives you the possibilities of either a world full of trees or a world full of modernist uh, managed landscapes, which are, of course, the, the epitome of this is the soybean field. Um, so that those technologically managed landscapes and the wild landscapes are similar in their emptiness in terms, uh, their emptiness and their limited access uh, in terms of human populations. Again, the ideology is one of the insufficiency of local populations to manage these areas and also the idea as a, of the tropics as a colonial project, that is a modernizing colonial project. The moral rationale for protection there is, of course, planetary environmental virtues and environmental services. The market rationales really are efficiency markets increasingly for beauty and carbon offsets. The question one might ask now is whether in this world of um, waning hegemony, how this is going to work out um, uh, and whether we need to rethink these imperial strategies within the realm of the firm. But um, the question I would argue here, and sort of the final couple of points I'm going to make, is that first of all, tropicality has been, and tropicalisms are divergent in their forms. Uh, they depend on different projects and they have different logics to them, but they do have some overweening themes. The second thing is that there really is a difference between northern uh, tropicalities and tropical tropicalisms and Mediterranean ones. And particularly the ecclesiastic and lusophone ones were incredibly engaged with people and always saw people and this possibilities of, if you will, a sustainable form of, uh, of development in the tropics, one that was imbricated in social networks that already existed. The, um, versus, and their way of claiming was by making citizens um, uh, Christian or citizens uh, Lusophone or Luso-Brazilian Luso in the case that we're talking about. And so that incorporation into the sort of national project was the, was the way of doing the imperial, the imperial strategy. And it's thus that they were in, uh, used to our ways and language was how the, the form of claiming. That is, it was people who claimed, not emptiness, that allowed expropriation. So it's a very different episteme. Um, uh, the third thing is that these landscapes, what I'm showing you here is actually a, uh, a picture of an area in the Shingu National Park 
um, which is, this is from Michael Heckenberger, and what this shows is really all the different um, land use forms that occur with, within what you would imagine to be a natural forest. Um, and there's all these infrastructural things in place. So one of the things that's important to realize is that there were, <laughs> there were autochthonous um, civilizations in the tropics. And that um, this picture here, of course, is the empty tropics. So this is the sort of image of the full tropics with lots of infrastructure and you know, complex civilization with dense populations. And this is both the area of preservation and soybeans, which is an empty landscape on both sides. So the central question, I think, as we, move, um, as we move along here is that we come to a situation now in Amazonian conservation where these two models are kind of battling themselves out. Um, and what we see, actually, in terms of the contemporary politics, and I'll go into a lot more detail on just one of these. There, all of these are worthy of huge uh, tomes. Uh, and tomorrow I'll talk about quilombos and the contemporary colonist politics of Amazonia. But we're now at a point where half the colonization, actually half the Amazon area, is uh, in conservation units that involve inhabited landscapes. And um, they are, the question revolves around the, the issue of whether they can be durably preserved in this model. What is known is that if you don't have people in these areas, they become sort of open commons, vulnerable to any kind of uh, extractive activity on the, um, on the landscape. And the final point really is what we have is what is a, what a set of sort of competing authenticities of landscape. One which argues that an authentic landscape is one that has people in it, and one that argues an authentic tropical landscape is one that doesn't have people in it, but is managed from a metropole. So thanks very much. That's it for me.